My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 22 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. How are you guys? A couple of stats for you. Three years of a life extension for runners when compared to people who only walk. 45% less risk of cardiovascular disease for runners compared to non-runners. 30% less all-cause mortality for runners when compared to non-runners. Why run? Cardiologist and runner Paddy Barrett today tells us why would you not? Everyone, let's get our running gear on. Let's go. Welcome everybody to this week's show. How are you all keeping? And did you hear those stats? Incredible, aren't they? So if you need something to help keep you training at the moment, we've got an expert in his field, preventative cardiologist and runner himself, Paddy Barrett, coming up in just a moment to talk to us about the benefits of running on our health and why it's so important to share this message too with our friends and family who might not be as active as ourselves. Paddy is an athlete of our in-house coaching expert Rene Borg so Rene is going to jump onto the call now in a moment as well and before we sound the starters gun a special thank you and shout out to our two new Patreons who have joined us since the last show Darren McCanning one of the Eco Trailblazers from Eco Trail Wicklow has come on board many thanks Dermot for the support and good luck to you over the coming weeks as you return to the classroom Maeve O'Reilly you're very welcome on board as well and delighted to have you listening in and Sharon Aaron Carney, who we mentioned last week, actually listens in from Whistler in Canada. We weren't sure where Sharon was. So Sharon, it's great to have you listening in and a shout out to all your family listening in too. Um, I know you're over there, I think in Canada for about six years now. So I'm sure you're looking forward to getting back home as well. And about that new Patreon page to help support the show, we will never put paywalls up for our content as our aim is to grow the sport of trail and mental running in Ireland in a fun and free way for our listeners so with the patreon page we simply ask that if you would like to make a contribution to the show to help cover costs and a small recognition for the hours put in to produce the show we would be very grateful and we'll continue to do our best to produce great content for you and for our podium run feature this week guys he didn't send it in directly to us but i'm going to give a great shout out to our gold podium run runner this week gavin Byrne, who did an 80 kilometer epic run as part of the Eco Trail International Challenge around the Phoenix Park. Gavin started out on his own at the crack of dawn and he shot directly to the top of the leaderboard where he stayed and was proclaimed the Eco Trail Virtual Challenge 80k champ. So fair play to Gavin for that incredible physical run, incredible physical effort all around the Phoenix Park, 80 kilometers, and indeed to all the Irish that took part in the Eco Trail Virtual Challenge. We were second in participation levels just behind the host nation the organizers France so guys let's get cracking on with our special guest this week and dial in Paddy Barrett Paddy you've such a distinguished career 
So I dare not to try and summarize it myself. So maybe we could start off the chat today by asking you to give us a, a summary of your career to date and how it overlaps with your great interest in running as an exercise. Well, thanks for the, the opportunity to share my thoughts. Um, my name is Paddy Barrett. I'm a cardiologist at the BlackRock Clinic in Dublin, but uh, my specialty interest is in prevention of cardiovascular disease and also in digital health technologies um, and the, the real overlap between, between those two. Um, my career, I think, started off with an interest in being a cardiac surgeon, and then that quickly moved to being an interventional cardiologist. And uh, as I kind of learned more and more about cardiovascular disease and how you could make a disproportionate uh, impact, um, it really became clear to me that um, the biggest gains were to be made much earlier in the disease course. Um, and that was around uh, the prevention of cardiovascular disease. So Really, it's that understanding of uh, prevention of cardiology, uh, prevention of cardiovascular disease, and also the technologies that we can use to to support it. So, kind of that has taken me around the world, from Australia to New York to San Diego, um, and uh, back to Ireland. And uh, so, that's been kind of the the whirlwind uh, tour of my uh, career to date. And where are you based in Ireland, Paddy, at the moment? Uh, based in in Dublin, um, in the Black Rock Clinic. Great. And I suppose, where did, did running um, fit in with that? I'm sure a very busy and fascinating professional career, Paddy. Were you a runner before you started to study medicine or because of what you were reading and studying and learning about the great benefits of exercise and sport? Is that what kicked off your, your interest in running? Uh, by way of full disclosure, um, I have been a, a lifelong terrible runner. Um, I have spent uh, decades uh, battling um, ITV, um, running for short periods, injuring myself, stopping, uh, restarting. And I, you know, it was easy uh, 10 years of back and forth. Um, and it wasn't uh, until really about two years ago, um, when I started to get more formal input around my running that I was able to change certain aspects of how I ran and reduce the likelihood of, of injury. So it's, it's really only in, in the last, say, two years that I have, uh, I think, taken on, you know, running much more seriously. And when I say seriously, I don't really mean to a, compet a competitive level as, as we were speaking before. My, my only objective is to be moving outdoors. Um, and uh, so, you know, I might be a professional in the world of cardiology, but I'm definitely an amateur in the world of running. Well, I know you've started to work with Rene recently. And Rene, has he been a good student so far? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's funny you ask because uh, I don't want to give away any details about really what Paddy is doing. I, I leave that to him. But he did a he was improvising yesterday about a particular workout, you know, making a change based on circumstances. And I was just telling him it was the exact right choice, you know. So so far, anyway, I, there's nothing about the way he acts that would lead me to say anything but him being a very quick adopter of you know of the principles we're trying to bring across. 
Well, I don't think you mind us talking about maybe what that change in your training was over the last week, Paddy, and especially given the circumstances that we're all in now. But you recently got the vaccine and it did have a knock on effect for your training that day. We'd love to hear more about it, Paddy, um, the, the procedure and then the knock on effect and indeed why you chose to take the vaccine. And, you know, please, God, um, most of us will be able to take it and get it and we'll all be back to normal as soon as possible. Yeah. So as a health professional, I've been incredibly fortunate to have, you know, access to the vaccine at an early date. Um, I received the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, Wednesday of, of last week. And certainly um, it had been the, the experience for those who have received the, the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine that uh, there were, you know, some adverse effects from that in terms of you know, feeling unwell or kind of aches, uh, fevers and chills. And I certainly got all of those. Um, uh, so, you know, did feel particularly unwell, but that is is really kind of in some ways a reflection of the positive immune response to the vaccine. But by the next morning, um, I track uh, several of my biometrics in terms of, say, resting heart rate, uh, recovery scores by a whoop band and uh, an HRV. And all of them um, had really abruptly changed uh, to the kind of the, the negative side. My resting heart rate had gone up by easily 12 beats per minute. Um, and I think it's it's just a really interesting reflection of when you are actually behind your, your power curve or you're not actually um, feeling your best, you can see this really kind of nicely illustrated in your physiology. And I think particularly you see this with uh, you know, more elite runners that they have this, uh, I think, compelling attitude that they, they need to be training at the highest level all the time. But we, we need to have these biofeedback mechanisms to tell you that sometimes you need to dial it back. You need to choose a, a more kind of an easier run or, or maybe, or maybe take a day off. And I think it's, it's the understanding of those biofeedback loops that I think help us make much more sensible decisions um, uh, about our, our training patterns over time. And Rene, from a coaching point of view, I think Paddy absolutely did the right thing, didn't he? In terms of, I think he was maybe due to do a, quite a hard, intense session, but he totally stepped back. The right thing to do. Yeah, well, uh, the first thing he did was to, I think, if I remember right, he halved the distance, you know, of the Sunday run, which is usually the long run. And obviously a long run is a stressor for most people, you know, so halving it turns that in from what could be a significant stressor to a very minor one for someone who is already running. Um, but I actually think maybe more interesting with that comment on is um, this whole idea of biometrics, because obviously I don't have Patty's experience with, you know, medical biometrics, but in the running community, there's been an increased interest in this as well. And especially in what one of the things Patty measures, which is the heart rate variability, um, mm -hmm. because it is even more accurate really in reflecting, you could say the overall health of the body, it appears than the resting heart rate. And there was one study done, and I think it was on US Marines, where they showed that there was a greater training effect when they used heart rate variability scores to determine what sort of intensity the Marines should train on on a given day. So, you know, basically, if the scores were good, they were going to pick something more demanding. If the scores were poor, then they would pick something, you know, less demanding, an easy run, even so it was a very fluid schedule. You know, and that's something that if you get too wedded to a training plan being exactly the way it looks on paper, you can lack the mental flexibility, you know, to respond to these measures. 
Yeah. And Rene, could I ask you for a definition of heart rate variability? I think it's a relatively new term in terms of training scores and indicators for adapting our training. Everybody is certainly familiar with resting heart rate. That's been well established over a long time. It's something I've always looked at over the last 15 or 16 years. But heart rate variability, that's a fairly new one. What should runners look out for with that? So you, if you direct that to me, well, basically, yeah. the, the, the more variability, roughly, it is a bit simplistic, but the more variability there is in the beat-to-beat um, intervals, okay. the better. Right? So if your heart rate variability is lower, it's a sign that something's going on with the body. And um, now it's been a while, actually, since I looked into this deeply, but I believe it has to do with uh, there's a link between the heart rate variability and how well the parasympathetic nervous system, you know, the rest and digest system is functioning Mm -hmm. uh, and the body's ability to switch between, you know, the the two natural states that we have fight and flight and rest and digest. So the heart rate variability being very low can be a sign that that's that basically the body is taxed. So that would be the way to look at it, that there is an underlying condition, for instance. So it's a bit like a cannery in the coal mine. Um, but I think maybe Paddy can give, give us the, the deep details because if he's, a, you know, being a cardiologist, I imagine this is something they look at quite deeply now. Yeah. And is that something, Paddy, that you look at more than the more traditional resting heart rate? Uh, I use it in combination with everything else. I think we always have to be careful about being too wedded to one particular measure and we have to look at everything in totality. And, uh, you know, Rene's description is, uh, is correct. And I think a good way to, to think of it is that you're always holding this balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. And that's the fight or flight or the kind of the, the rest uh, function of it. And so there's always think of it, the accelerator and brake is being pressed at, at the same time. And when your heart rate variability decreases, it's much more of a reflection that the balance has tilted to a more sympathetic tone. So a more fight or flight tone. And that could be to do with say your recovery from say a long run, a poor night's sleep or getting the uh, COVID vaccine. And so it's, it's a signal to say that that, that, that balance has, has changed. Um, and if, if you think about it in terms of like a metronome, um, if uh, the heart rate is high and the heart rate variability is, is low, so it's, it's very, very predictable. But when you have high parasympathetic tone or that rest tone, uh, there's much more uh, flexibility and latitude, but it's, it's really around very short intervals of times. It's, it's milliseconds. Um, so, so that's why you need sometimes specialist devices to, to measure it. But again, it's, it's an important marker, but no marker should take uh, ultimate uh, supreme importance. Okay. Well, one of the main trusts of our discussion today, Paddy, is around the general benefit to our health of running. And there was a study that you shared a short while ago on your Twitter account from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. It was a study involving 55,000 people. And the results were incredible in terms of the benefit of running as opposed to maybe walking or or certainly not doing anything. The results showed that there was a three-year life extension for runners when compared to people who walk only. 
there was 45% less risk for cardiovascular disease compared to non-runners and 30% less all-cause all cause mortality compared to non-runners. So when we ask the question, why run? It's simply, why would you not run, Paddy? So maybe you could talk us through that study and just how important running especially is for overall good health. So, you know, that, that study that you, you, you quoted really kind of uh, was very seminal, in, uh, seminal in, in my own thinking. But I think the, the important thing to realize is that we've known for, for many, many decades that, that activity in whatever form is better than no activity. And then as you choose the activities in terms of running as an activity, ideally kind of in these zones that we talk about, this zone two threshold, um, that that has as very significant uh, upside uh, in terms of your decreasing of risk from dying not only from cardiovascular disease but from anything at all. Um, and when we talk about these reductions in all-cause mortality, it's typically a combination of the reduction in deaths from dementia, from the complications of diabetes, from cardiovascular disease, and from cancer. And you, you see with these studies that if you compare those who are doing the most exercise, um, and this is kind of in, in leisure uh, recreational athletes versus those who do the least or none, um, there are really, really striking differences um, in terms of the, the reduction in event rates uh, in cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. And also because of that, the, the extension in lifespan. Now, so it's, it's not really binary in terms of yes or no. We just know that activity in general is, is better um, uh, than doing no activity at all. But like everything in life, there's, there's the U-shaped curve uh, that goes with that. Um, in terms of if you're doing no activity, it's bad. If you're doing a more reasonable, optimal level of activity, it's better. And as you go up that curve, it improves and improves until you get to a point where it begins to, to tail off at the end. And, and maybe kind of even on the, the extreme tails, you get actual, uh, you know, changes in terms of it may not be the most optimal thing for you. So, you know, well, well you that know. might lead me, Paddy, into one of my questions that I was going to ask you that we know that running is so good for us. But then is there a danger for the high level elite athletes who are high mileage, who are, you know, really hammering it out maybe two or three times a week? And even though, say, those ultra races that are very, very popular these days, is there a danger that we can do too much at the same time? Uh, and I think there, there, there is, and I think this work has been, I think, mostly uh, popularized by James O'Keefe, who's a cardiologist, I think, in Kentucky. And really, when you, when you look at people who are in that category, which, to, to be honest, I think, obviously, in, in this cohort of listeners is going to be a higher representation, but as a, a representation of the population, it's actually going to be a small number of people. Uh, yeah. We see, uh, based on a variety of observational studies, it's very hard to, to randomize these over a longer period of time. And we have to understand all the limitations with observational studies. But for ultra athletes who are doing, say, 15 to 20 times the, the, the average weekly recommendation uh, of, a, of an exercise prescription, you do see some changes in terms of their myocardial fibrosis and scarring. You see changes in sometimes heart function or an increase in uh, arrhythmias, particularly atrial fibrillation. Um, so we know there's a, there's a dose response curve here um, that you know, more activity is typically better. Um, but at the very tails of that, um, you can see decreases in, in outcomes. And we have fairly plausible 
reasons as to as to what that might mean. So again, when when I look at this problem, I think you you have to always ask yourself, why is it that you're actually exercising and engaging in this activity, and what is your objective? For me, uh, it is simply to be outside, moving ideally in the wilderness, and if I can gain benefits from that in terms of reduction of my uh, all-cause mortality or cardiovascular disease risk, I'll definitely take that. Um, but if your objective is to win an ultra-distance race, you know you, you will have to operate in that zone, but you have to understand that it comes with the potential uh, decrease um, in, in lifespan that you may get with that. Um, so you have to kind of say, what is your, your overall objective here? Um, and then kind of, I think, train related to that. Okay. And I'll bring maybe Rene back in from a coaching point of view, Rene. Have you maybe seen any cases, Rennie, over the last decade or so of coaching of people who have pushed it too hard in terms of mileage, too many hard races, too many hard sessions, and it actually it affects their health in a negative way? Yes, well, I'd like to say I haven't coached anyone directly because we're obviously trying to avoid that. Uh, but a lot of the people who come to me would tell me, that they've overtrained. But I think a little bit more poignantly, you know, I think we know people own in the running community who on the surface appear to be perfectly healthy and they died prematurely of things like um, heart attacks and, and other illnesses. So obviously there can be many reasons for that, you know, and not just their training practices. Um, but it is well known that, for instance, a good example of running not always being necessarily healthy is when we get the balance wrong with the types of intensities we pick. And I know we're going to talk a little bit later, maybe about, you know, optimal intensities for health. Um, but we have seen, you know, this kind of cult of intensity in many sports that became very dominant in the nineties is in a way uh, an evolutionary mismatch because it is forcing the body to engage in a type of activity that is reserved for emergencies on a constant basis. And obviously for some sports, it is, it's similar, it's necessary to engage in a level of activity that the body really had consigned to emergencies much more often than it would ever be in, in you could say, in whatever a natural context would be. And you see, that's, if you look at, you know, natural populations and how much activity do they do, they are very active by modern standards, but they are not active compared to elite athletes. You know, the, the level of activity, let's say, a Hatsa hunter-gatherer engages in is in nowhere near as strenuous as, let's say, an Olympian uh, endurance runner. And also their exercise is more varied than that of the endurance runner. And I think that's kind of the trade-off Paddy refers to is that whenever you go down a certain route of specialization and excess, uh, you could pay with your health. Um, and certainly I have seen people then who, in a way, you know, the type of symptoms they describe is chronic fatigue, you know, and or just that there is always some new breakdown um, and they can't explain it because they don't they don't think they're doing anything wrong when they come to you. You know, they just there's always another injury or their mood is down or they're constantly coming down with, you know, small infections and um, things like that. Um, but the cure is nearly always, you know, to try and bring them back to um, a level that is sustainable and then to look at the balance of the training to get more of it aerobic. And so I'm preempting a bit, maybe the discussion to come, but there's obviously that the, the aerobic type exercise is healthier than the than doing the high intensity exercise at a high level or at a high volume. Yeah. 
It's a great segue, Rene, into our maybe discussion on zone one, two and three um, that we were going to talk about. And I must admit that it's a trap that I fell into over the last maybe two or three weeks, where at the moment I'm in a 12 week base period after the various problems last year with lockdown here in Las Palmas, where I am, the niggles and the injuries that followed. I said, right, I'll go back and just do a 12 week base period. Um, now, what happens, well, what happened to me in that period was I'm not doing any hard running. So therefore, I'm not doing a hard session where the next day I'm really tired. So my body is forcing me to run in maybe zone one or in zone two. So because I'm never fully tiring myself out, I tend to drift into zone three. So nearly probably 90% of the time I'm running in a high zone three because I'm not whacked enough from the session the, the previous day. Now, what I've noticed happening is that fatigue is slowly creeping in because I'm just running too fast every day. And Paddy, I know that you have a great interest in the work of the Spanish researcher Inigo San Milan and zone two training, the importance and the benefit of it. So Paddy, maybe you could start off this part of the conversation by, by talking about your interest in that and the importance of running in zone two and not pushing into zone three and, and zone four too much. So the, the way I look at this at a, at a very high level is my objective is to increase lifespan and to increase health span. And the, the way you do that is, is really by delaying the onset of the chronic diseases that are most likely to lead to your death. And that is going to be cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, and the complications of diabetes. And one of the, the commonalities that exists between all of those, um, it is not the exclusive cause, but a commonality is, is really is your cardiometabolic health or your insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance, which is a precursor to metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and then the, the expressions of uh, most likely cardiovascular disease. So this, this idea of, uh, of insulin resistance is something you can identify, um, you know, years and decades in advance. And Inigo San Milan is a, a researcher who's really kind of looked at this um, through the lens of the, the healthiest cohorts of people um, and compared those to say recreational athletes and to, to those with, uh, with pre-diabetes or, or metabolic syndrome. And so he works with Team Nova Nordis, the, the cycling team, and actually maps out um, how they actually uh, generate uh, their lactate curves in terms of their, their exercise profiles and the amount of workloads that they're actually doing, and then compares those uh, to individuals who are normal, healthy, active athletes and those who have metabolic syndrome. And you can see that, that really their, their ability to generate incredibly high workloads without pushing up their, their lactate above two um, is just absolutely spectacular to, to see. And we can see those with metabolic syndrome, that, that, that early stage um, or kind of the, the, the manifestation of, of insulin resistance, they just very quickly at very low workloads push their lactate threshold above two. And that's an indication of not being metabolically flexible um, and it can, it is likely to be a very early warning sign of being cardiometabolically unwell. And if you are cardiometabolically unwell, you are much more likely to develop the chronic diseases that we spoke about at an earlier time point. And 
when we then look at the one of the best i suppose the treatments for this is is really zone 2 training so uh, that is something that you know you i feel that from an activity point of view from from my own patients that i'm really trying to encourage them to have the 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 majority of their activity time in zone 2 um so that they can optimize their mitochondrial efficiency and so as that they can actually keep their blood lactate levels below two. Um, and by doing that, you improve your, your metabolic flexibility. You, you reach a point where you can do higher and higher workloads, um, but keeping the, your, your lactate thresholds, which is going to be measured as a proxy by your heart rate, um, uh, below certain levels. And, and you see um, significant improvements with that. And when you see those improvements, you see decreases in cardiometabolic risk, you see the other parameters improve. And so, you know, this is, I think, one of the most kind of important measures that, that I would use in terms of prescribing exercise, um, in terms of how you're looking at this. And I think, you know, identifying these curves uh, early in individuals is, is really kind of a very early harbinger of cardiometabolic dysfunction um, and offers us an interesting approach to how to treat it. Sure. And Paddy, how would you identify zone two training from your running background and then from your medical background as well? I think most watches these days will make it very easy for us to identify zone two, but it'd be good to hear maybe your definition of it as well. So uh, I think the, the, in an ideal sense, um, we would do a lactate threshold test and some of my patients uh, will do that. Um, some of my patients will even measure their own lactate um, uh, pre and post exercise. But for most people, that's not going to be, I think, possible or, or feasible. And, uh, you know, I think for the, the average individual, you're going to be looking at some form of a proxy measure related to either heart rate, um, uh, you know, and pick your formula of choice. We all know that they have imperfections, but I think it will be directionally correct um, uh, if you use a kind of a formula of choice or if you're using a, perce a perceived level of exertion. Um, and the, the perceived level of exertion one is, you know, uh, what I typically will tell my patients is that they're doing an activity that they could continue to have a conversation, but they probably prefer not to. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's, you know, so could you have a conversation for about five or 10 minutes on the phone, but you would just say, I, I would rather kind of get off the phone now. And that's, that's pitching the level of activity that, that, that you're going for. So I think it's, it's very much down to the individual um, and how deep they want to go on this. Um, so there's a whole range there, but you don't necessarily need uh, fancy tests if you want to be directionally correct. Yeah. And of course, from a club runner point of view, from a lot of our listeners who, who like the race as well, we need to go outside of that comfort zone, outside of zone two. And Renny, I know you had a very interesting question for Paddy about those moments when we do need to suffer and what that suffering actually means for Paddy. Paddy um, gave you a good quote, I think, one day. Maybe you wanted to, to want to run that by Paddy and um, Renny, that that quote that he had on suffering. Yes, if I, it was a kind of before a quite an interesting conversation we had. But I think what you said, Paddy, was that the, the that suffering arises in the gap between expectation and reality. And I think you were referring both to kind of our conscious psychological expectation and the subconscious expectations of what's going on. Um, and it just struck a chord with me because I, I think that is at the very core of all the training. Uh, 
of what we are trying to achieve with training is to try and make the gap between what your body expects to be able to handle and what it'll actually be able to handle when it meets that real challenge, you know, whatever it be, a mountain race, a certain pace, um, that we want to narrow that gap. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll I'll leave it over to you, Patty, to maybe go into, because I think you, you have a, a wider view of it than just the training element. I think you apply this to, to all of life and to, to medicine practice as well. Yeah, um, that, that is the I think the, the fundamental basis of of life, and uh, the you know this this quotation that that suffering is that gap between your reality and desire or expectation is is the foundational principle of of Buddhism, um, and this is I think applicable to every single thing we we do, um, and much of our our happiness, perceived happiness or perceived sadness, is not about our absolute position in terms of you know, where you are as an athlete or where you are professionally and how much money you have. It's, it's largely down to those expectations. And it's very much also linked to your direction of travel. Do you feel that you're, you're moving towards that goal uh, or you are, or are you moving away from it? Um, so it's, it's much more of a relative change um, in terms of uh, how you're you're progressing and i think all of us set up goals in terms of that we we want to achieve so that are our desires or expectations but if they are proximate enough that we can actually get there and we feel that we are making meaningful progress towards that that is where we get true deep satisfaction um out of life um but if we have inappropriate expectations or desires um and we feel that we are not moving towards that that's where suffering actually emerges. Um, and that's, that's a much more kind of a broader representation of how we experience the world, um, I suppose, as opposed to the, the specific moment of, of suffering during a, a long race and in those, those final uh, few miles. Um, I suppose there's, there's, there's a slight difference there, but um, you know, it's suffering nonetheless. And Paddy, we're talking about the, the great benefits of running, which seem very obvious in, in this conversation here. We've mentioned some of the stats earlier, and I'll just remind the listeners of them again. I mean, three years life extension, three extra years for runners compared to people who walk only 45% less risk cardiovascular disease compared to non-runners and 30% less all-cause mortality compared to non-runners. It seems very, very obvious, Paddy. There's lots of information out there, so it's not true lack of information. So where is the problem in society in general, Paddy, in terms of the massive health problems that are there, the massive rates of obesity, to name just one issue, when it seems so clear that exercise, movement, running can do so much for us? Where are we failing? It's it's very much down to the i the the ecosystems that we live in. Um, when we look at the the opportunity to exercise, um, if you're a say single mom who has two jobs and you know has suboptimal living circumstances, they, they know that they should be exercising in an ideal sense, but their environment does not allow that. Um, if you take somebody who's got a long commute to work, um, is working incredibly long hours, um, the, the opportunity for them to exercise is just 
far, far less. And I think when you, when you look at exercise and I know you mentioned a, a three-year life extension, uh, life extension, you can actually see studies where that life extension is far more up to a decade. If you're doing, if you're just being active in terms of for about five and a half hours a day, you can add a, approximately a decade uh, to your uh, lifespan. And the inverse of that, it's the equivalent of smoking 20 cigarettes per day. And that's where that term sitting is the new smoking actually came from. Okay, but yeah. If you if you look at the the opportunities to to make those choices that are around us, um, they're just far less. We spend most of our day sitting. We're either uh, commuting, and people know that they should be exercising. Um, but often we are in a position whereby we don't have the the time, the the scope to actually to do so. Um, and this creates a lot of distress for people because they they know that they should be doing this, um, and that they're not. And it's, it's a huge frustration to see people. So you, you have to be very, very intentional about it in terms of how you fit this in uh, to your life. So it's, it's not really a choice. It's a lack of options. And if you look at the, the world that we live in, in, in kind of modern day humanity as, as a percentage of how long we have been bipedal hominids um, out in the world of, you know, being hunter gatherers, it is a tiny, tiny fraction of time. Um, and our physiology is, is not really designed to, to compensate for this world. Um, if you, if you say, look at the, the average dietary choices, for example, um, go into any cafe or kind of, um, you know, and take a look around and, and ask, could I make a sensible choice most of the time? Um, and the answer is usually no. Um, so again, it's, you know, just because you have loads of choices, but if all those choices are bad choices, you know, you can't make a good choice. Um, so we are kind of left in, in this position where most of the choices that people have are bad choices. And again, when you, when you think about this in terms of the idea that the people have this information, we, we know that being active reduces your risk of heart disease, of, of all cause mortality, it increases your, your life expectancy. It's really interesting that if you actually look at the, the, the neuroimaging studies in this, and you look at the part of your brain that, that represents yourself right now, um, as if you, know, you were going to stick a sharp ob object into the back of your hand, you can imagine yourself very viscerally experiencing that pain. But if you imagine yourself, say, tomorrow or in five years or 10 years, the further out that you actually imagine yourself, that person is actually represented in an area of your brain much closer to how you represent a stranger. So the things that will happen in 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years um, are very hard for us to, to truly understand as being the things that happen to ourselves. And this is what I actually call the, the Homer Simpson problem when he is about to eat an entire jar of mayonnaise and drink a bottle of vodka. And Marge says, you'd better not do that. And uh, Homer replies, that's a problem for future Homer. And God, I'd hate to, I'd hate to be that guy. Um, yeah. And so our, our representation of ourselves in the future as being the one who is actually going to suffer the consequences of these things is so distant. It's, it's very, very hard for us to... Um, to, to fully understand that. And it, you see this with smokers, for example. There, there is not a smoker out there who does not understand that smoking is bad for them across a whole domain of reasons. And, but, but that's not why they smoke or why they, kind of, they, they don't smoke. It's, it's, it's a very different uh, um, set of reasoning. So this is where we get to this idea of, you know, it's to do with your, your values and beliefs rather than, than facts uh, that actually are most important here.
Okay, so maybe, I mean, certainly what we can do today after our conversation here and we can ask our listeners, Paddy, maybe to do as well is, is to share this podcast, to, to share our experiences, to share our stories, the stories that we're telling today of racing, of training and running and the, the health benefits, the mental benefits that we get from that, to share it with our moms, our dads, our brothers and our sisters. Because, you know, as you said, I think in some email correspondence with, with Rene that it's not true lack of information. If, if information was a problem, you know, we'd all be billionaires and have massive abs and super bodies because if we want all that, we can get it on the internet. But just because the information is there, it doesn't mean it works. So it's about telling stories. It's about connecting with people and trying to, as you said, change their values and their outlook on life. Yeah. And I think this is, uh, you know, we humans are storytelling creatures. Um, we, we change our, our, our beliefs, our, our goals and, and expectations based on those stories. Um, facts are very important, um, but this is the, the David Hume uh, philosophy line that, that facts, you know, what, what is does not automatically tell you what ought to be. Um, so this is the, the discussion of how facts become values. And you need to put that through a prism of, of how you're going to set up your priorities of, of values. And if your objective is to, is to live longer, um, is to reduce your chance of chronic diseases, um, you have to say, this is, this is my priority. And this is you know, how I'm actually going to, to look at this. Um, but, but again, in terms of there, there's a, a very famous quotation, and I'm not sure who said this, is that, you know, we are drowning in information and we are starving for wisdom. Um, and I think that is, I think, really why we, we have coaches. It's why we uh, align ourselves with experts um, who can present the, the right information at the right time in the right way to help us uh, make those decisions. Um, and I think th that is one of the, I think, the, the crucial pieces that we actually have um, to help us on that journey. And Rene, when athletes come to you, Rene, and they say, listen, I need a coach. I want to prepare for this race six months out, but I'm just stressed out. You know, I've got a tough job. I've got a couple of kids. Rene, how are we going to do it? What, what techniques, what tips, Rene, do you have to try and help people fit their training in um, and get their training done to help make them fitter, stronger and healthier? Well, we've actually covered a lot of it, but, you know, the first thing is that you, many people will think when you come to a coach um, and you fill out, let's say, a big questionnaire with all your training details and training history and all these stats, that that's actually the most kind of salient information that I analyze. Um, but re what the real thing to figure out is, what is the personality of this runner and what is it that really drives them? And you can usually read that between the lines. Um, now, I don't get a representative sample, Owen, because most people who come to me are already to their goal because the, even taking the step, you know, to have researched a coach online and then deciding to contact me and part with some hard-earned money for my advice means that there's already a high degree of motivation in most people who come to me. Yeah. If, if I could um, go out there in the street and grab someone who wasn't as committed, the goal for me would be to try and connect, first of all, um, whatever running goals they might have, or if they don't have a running goal, try and make the running goal meaningful to them you know, and motivating to them. Because it's this idea of starting with the end in mind when you have a process. Because as, as Paddy was alluding to, in today's world, physical exercise is 
there's it's ripped apart from purpose whereas traditionally most of the physical activity we did served uh, an immediate need you know such as gathering you know firewood or hunting for food and all these things or in manual jobs as well you know you had to do the manual job because that's how you earn money so a lot of people they get into exercise but they're lacking um, a true purpose behind it instead the the things that compel them into exercise tend to be more negative emotions such as guilt you know negative body image um sometimes it's it can be a negative coaching such as being talented um and therefore being prodded into goals that this athlete actually doesn't have by a coach and so for me it's about finding out what really motivates these people see what is their current starting point you know what are the constraints around their life situation can train the type of job they have the stress level the nutrition and then try and design well based on this is where they are what's the next logical step because it's actually what patty said very early on the next goal you give people needs to be close enough that it's achievable you know and it, and that's why you couldn't just take someone in the street not do that sort of due diligence you know just throw a program on the table in front this is my way or the highway. You do this because some athletes might be able to do that where others would look at what you've put in front of them and say, wow, that's, that mountain is so big to climb that I won't even start. Well, guys, we might close off the conversation today by looking at the next six to 12 months. And Paddy, I'm fascinated to get your opinion on this because you and your colleagues, you've been very much at the front line in hospitals and medical centers over the last year. And Paddy, what are your own thoughts on getting sport up and running again, getting back out racing, especially for all of us runners, um, in terms of protecting the community and the country from COVID? But then, of course, all the great benefits that sport, that team sports have. And I think over the last couple of days, I think the, the UK have really stepped up. And it looks like that they have a very um, tangible plan in place in getting the majority of their sport back up and running again by mid-April. And it seems like we're just a little bit behind at the moment. But Paddy, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing I would say is I am very happy that I'm not the one making this decision um, because it's an incredibly hard one. And ultimately, this comes down to, uh, I think, two factors. One is, is that the, the downside to, to COVID is its potential for exponential growth. But I think the, the flip side to that is that once you get reasonable penetration of vaccines, um, you're going to have exponential deceleration of cases, hospitalizations, and, uh, and deaths. So I think we're, we're going to see changes in the positive happen probably far quicker um, than, uh, than we originally anticipated. Um, the second thing is that ultimately this is an optimization problem. Um, and you have to ask, which domain are you trying to, to optimize for? And, and that is obviously going to be the reduction of cases, of hospitalizations uh, and deaths. But also the, the flip side to that in terms of how that impacts on people's mental health, how it impacts on the actual economic and societal uh, uh, portions of that. And also in terms of how we actually live our lives as, as, as social human beings. And so it's, it's trying to weigh up all of these and get an accurate uh, representation. And at what point do you actually begin to, to open things up? And that is an incredibly hard decision to make. Um, no one has perfect information. Um, but there will come a point very soon where we will see very meaningful reductions in 
um, in hospitalizations and deaths. And the the government will have to kind of look at the the cost of uh, keeping things closed and the cost of opening things up and try and weigh it across a much broader portfolio of uh, of impacts. And that is going to be a very difficult decision. Um, and you know, as I said, I'm, I'm just glad that I'm not the one making that. But I would like to think that we can be sensible about having a gradation of opening um, in terms of outdoor activities, which have substantially less uh, risk, um, particularly if non-contact is involved, and and, and do it in a, in a much more practical, sensible way that we can, we can open things up on, on a graded response uh, rather than waiting for some magical time point in the future where we have zero cases um, that we will open up everything um, in, in one go. So this is, this is a very difficult optimization problem, um, but hopefully we can have a much more, um, I think, practical approach to, to doing this on, on a graded basis. Well, one to watch this weekend, guys, is that here in Gran Canaria, the Trans Gran Canaria is taking place with about 1,800 runners. Um, it, it's a fascinating story, really, because the Trans Gran Canaria, it was the last big race that got to go ahead last year. I mean, this time last year, it was the weekend where it was really becoming public knowledge about what was going on. And the Trans Gran Canaria just about got the green light to go ahead. And then everything was shut down within maybe, I think, 10 days. Spain, then Ireland were all in, in lockdown. And this time around, it's one of the first big races to get to go ahead. And the public reaction and also the running community reaction has been very mixed, guys, really 50-50. Some people are very supportive of it, saying that it's so important that we continue with sport for the health and mental benefits. And then, you know, easily 50% saying it's way too soon, it's way too risky. So I suppose only time will tell over the next maybe two to three weeks once everything has settled down whether it was the right decision to, to go ahead or not. Uh, maybe, Renny, I might just bring you, Renny, in for, for the last point in this. Um, are Denmark doing anything different, Renny? And I'm sure that you would certainly love to see racing coming back as soon as possible. Yes, obviously, as an event organizer, you know, we hope as we hope so. And, you know, EcoTrail, which uh, we've spoken a lot about in this call, obviously, we hope that in September it'll um, it'll be able to go ahead. Uh, but in Denmark, yes, I've been following that, obviously, given it's my native country. And as you know, Denmark has taken um, a good bit laxer approach uh, than Ireland, uh, following similar strategies, but not with the same severeness. Uh, and they are hoping to start some trail races um, in April and May, but they are still kind of advertised with the proviso that um, if there is still a limit on the amount of people that can be together, then it will be virtual or semi-virtual. You know, So even in Denmark, they're not 100% sure, um, but they are kind of a step ahead, I would say, of, of where we are at the moment. Um, and probably if you look at their numbers as well, you can see the same trend. Yeah. Well, listen, guys, it's been a great conversation today. Really fascinating to have you on, Paddy. Thank you very, very much. Rene, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. And if anybody wants to get in touch with Rene, they can get him on runningcoach.ie. If anybody wants to talk to Paddy um, professionally, they can get him in the Black Rock Clinic, of course. And Paddy, if anybody wants to say hello to you at a race in the near future, where will we see you racing in a couple of months' time? What's, what's your racing plans? 
Well, the, uh, the, the goal is the Seven Sisters, uh, which is now on in August uh, of this year. And I, as a total kind of spur of the moment thing, signed up to, to Gale Force uh, in July. So if you see a, a cardiologist lying on his back, uh, desperately pleading for help, um, <laughs> that's probably me. Okay, listen, guys, have a great week's training. And hopefully we'll all see each other on the start line of a race um, sooner rather than later. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks, thanks Owen. Talk to you. Hope you enjoyed that fascinating chat with Paddy and Rennie, everyone. And please do do share that message of the great positive impact that exercise and especially running can have on everybody, everybody's health. And before we go, some race news from over here in the Canary Islands. As you know, I'm based over here. Normally I'm able to get home four, five, six times a year, but stuck over here now for the last um, 12 months or so. So dying to get home. But this weekend here in Gran Canaria, the Trans Gran Canaria took place, which is the biggest trail running race to take place now for a long time. It's the first big race of the new Spartan Trail World Championships. Now, normally in the Trans Gran Canaria, you'd have about 4,000 or so runners from over 60 plus countries. But this year they had 1500 or so so the entry was a lot more restricted it was an interesting one guys there was a lot of mixed views and mixed reactions locally and abroad about it as well you know i think you could easily say maybe 50 percent of the comment on social media and locally amongst runners was was in support of the race and then easily another 50 percent against the race happening as well lots of controversy about the organizers should they have gone ahead or not you know i've mixed views on it myself guys i'll be honest normally i work at the race as a race announcer at the start and the finish line but i suppose thankfully in one way that decision was taken away from me this year whether to work or not because we had our, our little baby leia a couple of weeks ago so i'm on paternity leave at the moment in one way it was great to see sport go ahead great to see a big trail race with 1500 people go ahead and hopefully there'll be no negative repercussions of it. I mean, I read there about the French rugby team who had a COVID outbreak. So it does happen even at elite sport, but I think the benefit hopefully of those 1500 runners running um, a great motivation, a great boost for everybody and the contribution to the organizing company as well to, in terms of their um, operations for the year, I'm sure will help keep them going as well and the people that they employ. So lots of positives. So hopefully it's the start of a good positive run of, of races, guys, over the next couple of months that will go off without any major negative impacts. So guys, a final reminder of our Patreon page. If you would like to support us, any help at all would be very, very much appreciated. You can contribute, I think, from as little as two to six euros a month. And um, we'd be very grateful of your help. Everybody, have a great week. Enjoy all those miles. Stay positive. Enjoy those hills. Enjoy those speed sessions and those hill reps as well. Everybody, get your running gear on. See you next time. Let's go. Let's go.